I would guess that Jonah is probably the most famous of the prophets. I mean, I think he's probably the only one that had a VeggieTales movie made about him. So, you know, <laughs> that tells you something. You've, really, you've, reached, you've reached the apex when VeggieTales makes a movie about you. Lots of people know about Jonah, even if they know very little about the Bible. And most of the time, I think Jonah, though we know about Jonah, we don't always understand Jonah. As we just read, the, the story of Jonah begins when God says to him, go preach to the people and the, against the, the wickedness to the people of Nineveh. Instead of going uh, east to Nineveh, Nineveh, he goes west to Tarshish. And he gets on the ship and the storm comes up and they end up casting lots and he's chosen. And they, he's, what do we do with, about this? And he says, throw me into the sea. And so reluctantly they do. You know, I, I, I like swimming, but I prefer a pool. I kind of like to be able to see the bottom. I don't really like swimming in a lake. I don't quite know how far down I'm going to go, and I don't always know what that is that I feel on my leg as I'm under the water, you know. And there's Jonah sinking down like a rock into the water when all of a sudden a fish, a huge fish, comes and swallows him. I have to tell you, I'm trying to decide which of those two is better, right? I mean, I'm in the middle of, in the belly of a fish. And, and yet Jonah sees it as rescue. And there are lots of people who see this part of the story as unbelievable. And they get bogged down with, with the fish. And there's all kinds of arguments about the fish. And it seems to me when you read the scripture, he's telling a true story of his life. But whatever your perspective of the fish, Jonah says he's in the fish. And while he's there for three days and three nights, he decides to write some poetry. Nothing else to do, right? So he pins this psalm. Actually, what he does is he starts singing the psalms that he's known from a little boy. Isn't it interesting how how music gets into our minds? Do you find yourself humming, singing the songs during the week that we sing on Sunday? I hope so. Music's a gift of God. And it's one of the ways we, he communicates his truth to us and reminds us. And they come to our mind. And so here is Jonah in the belly of this fish, remembering the songs that he sang when he went with his family to the temple. And that he himself has gone. And they come back to him and he sings these, pra- these songs of praise to God. And eventually, God has the fish spit him out onto the shore. And God says to him, okay, uh, Jonah, let's try this again. I want you to go preach to the wickedness of the people in Nineveh. And this time he goes. And for three days, he walks through the city of Nineveh, this huge city, and he preaches. If If Scripture tells us all that he says, he only says one sentence. In 40 days, the city of Nineveh will be destroyed. I don't, I don't picture Jonah doing that with a lot of enthusiasm. You know, just based on the rest of the story, it's sort of like 40 days, Nineveh's going to be destroyed. Now, there might be a little bit of enthusiasm because he's kind of happy about it. But he doesn't really, isn't all that excited about this mission that God has sent him on. But here's the most amazing thing. It says the people hear this message and they believe God. This is the greatest miracle Maybe in, in, the, in all the scripture, other than the resurrection of Christ. I mean, this is a phenomenal miracle. Jonah preaches three days and 120,000 people come to God. 
He's going to win every church growth award there is this year. Right? I mean, highest attendance, Jonah wins it. Most converts, Jonah wins. Just stay here because you win them all. You know, he, he, this is the most miraculous, successful preaching venture on record. Even Peter, when he preached at Pentecost, only had 3,000 converts. And you'd think Jonah would be ecstatic about it. But he isn't. Chapter 4, verse 2, well, chapter 4, verse 1 says, Jonah was very upset and very angry. These are strong words. He is irate. He is so mad. And he says, God, I knew you were going to do this. That's why I didn't want to come in the first place. I knew you were going to change your mind and forgive these people. I knew the kind of God that you are, that you're a God who is compassionate and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love. And you love to change your mind and forgive people. And honestly, God, it really bugs me. And he says, just just kill me now. I'm just done. Just kill me now. Isn't it funny the things we say when we're angry? I've had it. Just, just, it's, it's not worth it. Just kill me now. Jonah is upset because God is who he says he is. He says, I knew you were God who would do this. And he does it. And I didn't want these people to be, I didn't want these people forgiven. I didn't want them to receive this grace from you. I didn't want to warn them. And God says to him, are you really angry? That angry? Do you really have a right to be angry? And Jonah says, yes, I do. You shouldn't do these things. It reminds me of the parable in Matthew 20 of the the workers in the vineyard. Jesus tells the parable about a man who comes out at 6 o'clock in the morning. Who wants to work today? I say, we'll do it. He says, I'll pay you a denarius. It's a generous wage. And they work. And three hours later, it comes back. Anybody else want to work? Sure. Okay, I'll pay you what, what's fair. Next three hours later, I'll pay you what's fair. Three hours later, I'll pay you what's fair. Five o'clock in the afternoon. Anybody else want to work? One last chance. Sure, we'll go. Okay, I'll pay you what's fair. And they get done, and he gives them all of the areas. And the guys who worked an hour and four hours and seven hours, and they're ecstatic. This is great. But the guys that work 12, they're irritated. That's not fair. And the owner of the vineyard says, why? It's my money. Don't I have a right to be generous with what I have? Don't I have a right to be kind? It's the same question that God is saying to Jonah. Don't I have a right to be, to be compassionate and gracious and merciful and forgiving to these people? See, Jonah is not only the most famous prophet. I think he's probably the most un- misunderstood prophet. Because we have a tendency to think that Jonah is bad. Jonah is an example of a bad prophet. Jonah is, is, he he just, he doesn't get it. He's he's off the beam. His heart is just in a bad place. But the truth is, Jonah's not a bad prophet. It's just that Jonah is saying to God, look, you talk all the time about justice. 
You'd send prophets to talk about justice. And now, when you have an opportunity to prove that you mean it, you don't follow through. Jonah's upset because of justice. The Ninevites, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, which at that time and in the years, some of the years to follow, they would become the world power. And they are infamous for ruthlessness and cruelty. When you read the stories of what they do to the people they conquer, it turns your stomach. I mean, it is bad stuff. It is brutal stuff. And and we know that they do all of these things because they write it all down. They put it in the annals of their kings. This is what we did to the people. And they turn all the graphics, all the graphic details of it. And they're proud of it. Look what we did. Look how powerful we are. Look how much we can do. Look at the kind of authority we have. Look at, look at the violence that we do. And they see it as a badge of honor to be so violent and ruthless. And Jonah knows all about that because the people of Israel have, have been the recipients of that. I think for us to really get what Jonah feels, we have to think about it in modern day terms. It's, it's how we feel when we read stories about some of the heinous things that people do to children. Or maybe when we think about the the atrocities of the Civil War in Sierra Leone and then multiply it a hundred times. Or you think about all the things that some of the dictators of, of the past couple of centuries have done to those who oppose them. You think about how you may have felt on the day when you watched the planes fly into the towers and saw them crumble. And then you saw images of people in other places of the world celebrating. Or what you feel when you read about another story of another car bomb that goes off in another market and innocent mothers and children are there. You think about the kinds of things that our brothers and sisters are going through in places all over the world. I mean, Jonah feels it. And he's saying, God, don't you care about justice? You say you care about justice. Do you really? I mean, when we think about those things, we want justice, don't we? I mean, we want justice for people who do heinous things. We do. We want it. And we feel justified. We feel it's right to want justice. This is good to want justice. I think it's one of the reasons why we love superhero movies so much. I mean, the costumes are cool and they get to use cool cars and do, I mean, how much cooler than, you know, a spider web coming out of your wrist and you jump from building to building. But in the end... If the actor's really good, you feel passion about their evilness. And it's only complete when the superhero gives them what they deserve. And we live for that moment. And it's disturbing to us when movies don't end like that. And Jonah's just saying, God, where's the justice? And God is saying to Jonah, I care about justice. 
I care deeply about justice. I write about it. I I send words about it. I send prophets about it all the time. But here's what you have to understand, Jonah. My justice is not motivated by retribution. My justice is motivated by love. My justice is motivated by grace. And the purpose for my justice is not so I can crush people who, I, who, I, who deserve it. My, the purpose of my justice is to try to transform people. Try to help people see what life can be. That it doesn't have to be this way. And the grace of God is for all people because God creates all people and loves all people. Does he hold people accountable? Yes, certainly. But no matter how, what people have done, if they turn to God, there is always grace. And there is always grace wooing them. It's Hosea's word to Israel. Despite all the ways that they turn against God, he is continually saying, come back to me. And he's pursuing them and loving them and caring for them. But the problem with Jonah is they don't deserve it. There is... This prophet, like many of the others, brings us back to to this great Hebrew word, chesed. And it's hard to define. I mean, you'll see it translated a variety of ways in different versions of the Bible. But it comes out as mercy or grace or loving kindness. It's hard to, to pin it down to one meaning and books are written about it. But it's the sense of the heart of God of, of grace and compassion on undeserving people. And so you find in Scripture, uh, God say, saying, there is going to be justice. I'm going to hold you accountable. There's going to be punishment. And the very next breath, God says, come to me, repent, and I'll, I'll make you new. It's all we have sinned and gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's grace. But Jonah's having a hard time seeing that because we have a hard time seeing it too. A few years ago, someone asked me a question. It's haunted me since then. I think about it often. I ponder it. I've not yet come to the end of it. I'm still trying to figure it out. But they asked me this question. If God could find a legitimate way for every person in the world to receive eternal life, how would that make you feel? If God could find a legitimate way for everybody in the world to receive eternal life, how would that make you feel? Now, I'm not saying God does that. That's God's thing, not my thing to to make decisions about. I'm not saying that that that's what God does. All I'm saying is this hypothetical question. If God did that, how would that make you feel? And I suspect somewhere in the back of our minds, one of the first things that comes to our mind is that's not fair. Because we've, we've sacrificed and we've surrendered and we've given up and they haven't. But when you begin to think through that, what we're really saying is surrendering to Christ, giving our lives to Christ, living in, in, in the rule of Christ, living in the kingdom of heaven, living in intimacy with Jesus is not near as good a life as not. 
And the truth is, when you surrender to Christ, when you, when you live a life of, of sacrifice and, and, and intimacy with God, and you live under the, the principles of the kingdom of God, that's the sweet spot of humanity. That's what we were created to experience. That's the transforming power of Christ in our lives. And it just reveals how skewed sometimes our perspective of God and his kingdom is. And that's because I think we believe the kingdom is rooted in rules and laws and strictness. When in reality the kingdom is rooted in grace and mercy and the love of God. And it's once we begin to understand that, then any surrender we make for Christ really isn't a surrender. It's just opening us up to more and more of the flourishing of Christ that he designed for us. And every time we say yes to Christ and no to something else, we are opening ourselves up to more and more of the grace of God in our lives. And and we begin to experience what Jesus said he came to do, and that's to give us abundant life. As John writes, this is life that you find in Christ. And and when you begin to experience that and understand that, then your heart is so full of gratitude to God that you want everyone else to experience what you've experienced. And you want people who have done heinous things to come to faith. You want people who don't deserve it to be set free. Because the reality is, we don't deserve it either. And that's often the catching point for us. In that passage in Matthew 12, we read, you know, they come to Jesus and say, we want a a miraculous sign to to prove who you are. And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to give you any miraculous sign other than the hundreds I've been giving you every day. But how about this? The only sign you get is Jonah. As he was three days and nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. But he just can't leave it there. And he says, and by the way, now that I thought about Jonah, you know those Ninevites? Those heinous people? They understand the kingdom better than you guys do. And ultimately, it's going to be better for them on that day than it is for you on that day. Because they understand that everything they experienced was pure grace. And you're missing that. And again, it's not that God doesn't care about justice. It's not that God doesn't hold people accountable. You'll notice that that the people there in Nineveh, they lament, they, they take action. They say, we've got to stop our violence. They put sackcloth on everything, even the animals. I don't know how you put sackcloth on a chicken, but I'm thinking that they did it. There's, I don't know why, but everything. I mean, they were serious about this. Something clicked for them, and they said, we've got to be different people. And maybe, maybe if we repent, God will spare us. And I'm convinced that the struggle for us to want other people to experience God's grace is because we wrestle about experiencing God's grace ourselves.
See, this is really not a story about how we feel about other people. This is a story about how we feel about how God feels about other people. Are we willing to celebrate and embrace the way God feels about the whole world? John Ortberg says that when, not too long after he and his wife got married, they, uh, they sold their Volkswagen Beetle and, and they bought a, um, the, the nicest piece of furniture they had owned. It was a, a pink sofa. He said, actually, when you spend that kind of money on it, they call it mauve. But it was really pink. <laughs> and he said, we, they had three small children. And he said, you can guess what the number one rule of our house was when we brought that thing home. Thou shalt not eat on the mauve sofa. Thou shalt not sit on the mauve sofa. Thou shalt not go near the mauve sofa. Thou shalt not even think about the mauve sofa. On any other chair of the house, you may freely sit. But on the day you sit on the mauve sofa, you will surely die. And he said, everything went well until the day of the fall. His wife came in and there was this big stain on the mauve sofa. A red, sta- a red jelly stain on the mauve sofa. And she called the guy at the factory and he told her how really, really bad that was. And so she called their children into the living room. I think Laura was about four, Mallory two and a half, Johnny was six months And she said, children, do you see this red jelly stain on the mauve sofa? The man at the store said, that stain staying on the sofa for all of eternity. You know how long all of eternity is? It's how long we're going to stand here until one of you confesses to putting that stain on the red mauve sofa. Silence. He said, finally, Mallory broke. He said, I knew she would. And she said, Laura did it. (laughs) Laura said, no, I didn't. Silence. And Orberg says that I knew that none of them were going to confess to putting that red stain on the mauve sofa because they had never seen this ma- their mom this mad before in, in their lives. He said, I knew they were not going to confess to putting that red jelly stain on the mauve sofa because they knew that if they did, they would spend the rest of eternity in the timeout chair. He said, I knew that they were not going to confess to putting that red jelly stain on the mauve sofa because the fact was, I did it. (laughs) And I wasn't saying a word. (laughs) And he said, here's the truth. We have all stained the mauve sofa. And we keep staining the mauve sofa. And what we deserve is eternity in the timeout chair. But for the grace of God. The grace of God. Because you don't deserve it and I don't deserve it. And Jonah didn't deserve it and the Ninevites didn't deserve it. But that's why it's grace. 
And only when we begin to understand that everything good in our lives, everything everything that we call blessing, everything about our relationship with Jesus is because of his grace. When we begin to acknowledge that and grasp that, not just up here, but down here, it will change our perspective about how we feel, about how God feels, about everybody else. And we'll start seeing people the way God does. Because we begin seeing ourselves the way God does. If you're like me, there are probably people or persons who you struggle to want to see the way God does. Today is a perfect opportunity to ask God to help us to start wanting to feel the way God does about other people. To start embracing and celebrating the way God feels about people. And I think we will find in that journey a sense of freedom and joy and grace and new life. Because it's a part of being set free. To be like Jesus. Heavenly Father. You know sometimes how we struggle. With the same things that Jonah does. Do something in us Father. leads us to embrace and celebrate the way you feel about people. We pray this through the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen.